This podcast is sponsored by the FG Barnes Group with showrooms in Canterbury and Maidstone, offering a range of new and approved used cars, including MG, Seat and Vauxhall. Kent Online News. News you can trust. This is the Kent Online Podcast. Ishmael Kawaja. Hello, hope you're doing well and can enjoy the weather. Now it's brightened up a bit. It's Wednesday the 23rd of November. Thanks for downloading today's podcast. We start with the top story on our website. A mum from Edenbridge says she's had to go abroad for a medical diagnosis because of long waiting lists on the NHS. Agnieszka Kid Grey has been in severe pain for a year and a half but struggled to get seen by a specialist here in the UK. But a doctor in Poland almost immediately realised she had endometriosis, which affects the ovaries. So I was many, many times going to GP. They've been giving me different painkillers. I went four times to NAE in that pain because I just couldn't cope. The pain was just 24 hours and nothing was helping me. I decided I, I, I need to do something because, you know, I'm still in pain and they, they just don't believe me. Likely, I've got family in Poland who lent me money to look for endometriosis specialist. I traveled to Poland. My mom pushed me on the wheelchair because I was that weak. Basically, when I saw him, he diagnosed me in a few minutes just through gynecological ultrasound. I agreed for surgery with him, which I had 30th of September. Uh, he found endometriosis absolutely everywhere. Well, to talk more about this, I'm joined by our reporter Charlotte Phillips, who worked on the story. So Charlotte, just explain how long Agoniska had been struggling for and what pain she was experiencing. So she said she'd been in constant pain for about a year and a half and she was experiencing discomfort pretty much 24 hours a day. Um, she'd been to a number of GPs and gynaecologists and ended up going private, um, which she said wasn't very helpful. The doctors kept putting her on antibiotics and wouldn't send her to an uh, endometriosis specialist when she asked them to, um, and she said nothing would help the pain. It took a long time until she was eventually diagnosed and treated in Poland for endometriosis. What issues did she encounter with health services here before that? So she went to A&E four times and said that her worries were kind of pushed aside by doctors and no one would take her seriously. She did have an x-ray at one point and was told that nothing was wrong and then got a call the next day saying that she could have a problem with her hip, which wasn't the case. She did have a surgery as well, which she said wasn't wasn't helpful at all. So I think that was kind of the last straw for her to go to Poland to get surgery there. The government insists they're giving more funding to the NHS to try and reduce waiting lists, but she must have felt let down. I think that she definitely felt let down and she said the whole experience caused a lot of stress for her. Uh, physically and mentally and it also had an impact on her family Um, she couldn't bend down she couldn't play with her children she couldn't put pizza in the oven for her children her husband had to shower her so I think that she's felt very left let down by the NHS. And how is she doing now after the surgery? She's doing great now she says that the pain is a lot more manageable now and she's tired a lot but she feels a lot better um, and is glad that she went to Poland to, to see a specialist there. Thanks for those details, Charlotte. Kent Online reports. Some of our other top stories now. A dad of two from Kent has been described as gentle, intelligent and loving after being found dead at a rehab retreat in Malaga. An inquest turned 35-year-old Christopher Oldfield, who was born in Canterbury, took his own life at Camino Recovery in July. His family have questioned whether the facility did enough to support him. We've approached bosses for a comment. It's emerged a paper mill near Canterbury went under, owing more than 
than £6 million. More than 100 companies have been left out of pocket following the decision two months ago to put the firm operating Charlton Paper Mill into administration. It's thought staff and 17 companies in Kent that are due more than £1,000 each are unlikely to get any money. The number of PCSOs in Kent looks set to be cut as part of a bid to save the police force around £7 million. It's thought as many as 200 community support officers could go, while some civilian staff also face losing their jobs. A 60-day consultation is underway, whilst they say more full-time police officers would move into neighbourhood roles. Now, there's been a sharp rise in the number of households in need of emergency housing in Kent's most deprived district. A total of 542 people in Thanet have had to be given the support during the last financial year. That's almost double than the previous one. More than 200 are also currently in temporary accommodation, meaning they would likely be homeless otherwise. Well, I've been speaking with Chris Thomas from homelessness charity Porchlight, who told me it's worrying but not surprising. People in Thanet and people all across the county, in fact, are being really squeezed by the rising cost of living. It's pushing poorer households uh, towards homelessness. And, you know, we're heading towards a, a crisis. So it's not that surprising, sadly, that a lot of people are finding themselves in this position. Yeah. And uh, like I said, it's obviously not just a, a Thanet specific issue, but we, we know that Thanet, of course, is the most deprived district in, in the county. So how, how important is investment in this particular time, you know, for the local authority to be able to meet this emergency housing demand? Yeah, it's really important. I mean, we work with Thanet Council, we work with other councils, um, and we're all doing what we can to help people. But the fact of the matter is that, you know, there's not nearly enough uh, money coming in from central government to allow us to tackle these issues. It's a big problem. And we need central government to actually take these problems seriously, give the right amount of money, give, um, you know, provide more social housing where people can actually live, uh, do more to help people who are struggling to pay the bills and put food on the table. Um, yeah, the government, central government has to step up, really. Yeah, and you allude to it already, but how much is the cost of living crisis playing a part right now, leaving many families in a desperate situation? The people we were talking to before the cost of living crisis hit, you know, they were already struggling and now they're in a much worse position, you know, and, and people who weren't struggling before, now they're finding it difficult to pay the bills as well. Um, it's going to have a massive knock-on effect. And then to add to that, you know, you have, you're starting to see uh, landlords selling up, uh, landlords turning their properties into like Airbnbs, uh because they're more lucrative and, and as a result, people are losing their homes. So you have this sort of perfect storm of things happening that's really, really making it difficult for, for a lot of people right now. Is your organisation feeling a lot more pressure at the moment? I imagine you're getting a lot more people contacting you asking for help. Yeah, it's um, there's a lot of people out there right now who need help. A lot of people who, um, you know, there's a lot of people who are on the streets and need help. There's a lot of people who are in their own homes for now, but, but, but they're struggling and we're doing what we can. Um, but it's difficult, you know, organisations like Porchlight, local councils, we can only do so much and we will do everything we can to help people. But it all comes down to central government needing to 
to step in and, and, and sort of address the issues that are putting people in this position in the first place. Obviously, we're heading through these winter months now. It's getting a lot colder. The weather's getting pretty miserable. Just tell us what, what it must be like for someone who is on the streets. And we know how particularly tough it gets during the winter. Yeah, it's dangerous to be homeless at any time of the year. Um, in the winter, it's especially dangerous. It can be deadly. Um, you know, people are outside. You've seen what the weather's like today. Um, they've got no, they've probably got no shelter. Um, it's just a really, really difficult time. And we're all trying to do as much as we can to bring people um, in from the cold. But there's a crisis brewing. Um, it's, it's worrying. Um, something, something needs to be done by the government, really. This podcast is sponsored by the FG Barnes Group with car dealerships in Canterbury and Maidstone. Home Secretary says it's becoming incredibly difficult to find accommodation for asylum seekers who are crossing the channel in small boats. A controversial processing site in Thunnet has now been cleared following concerns about overcrowding and poor conditions. It's understood the government's bought up extra space in hotels. Giving evidence to the Home Affairs Committee in Parliament, Suella Braverman said she wasn't sure when the huge backlog in asylum cases will reach a manageable level. I agree that there is a, uh, the backlog is uh, too, high, uh, too high and we are developing comprehensive plans to tackle and reduce the asylum backlog. Uh, there are three primary mechanisms that we aim to do that. Uh, firstly, increasing the productivity of caseworkers by streamlining, digitising and simplifying the process through the delivery of our transformation programme and the PACE programme. Secondly, tackling the legacy caseload in a balanced way. And thirdly, the recruitment of new decision makers. The average uh, decision, uh, the the rate of decision making is one decision a week per decision maker. Uh, We need to increase that. um, And that's why we are increasing the number of asylum caseworkers. Um, and uh, we've, uh, we've done that by 80% uh, from 597 staff in 2019-20 to more than 1,000 today. And we're on course for a further 500 people by March of next year, which would take our total to approximately 1,500. There is far too much delay in the system. It is too slow. And there are different um, uh, elements within our overall visa asylum decision-making system where um, decisions can be made in a, in a much quicker fashion. And I'm very keen to see what we can learn. I'm looking at um, you know, how can we try and streamline using technology. I, I agree that we are in a, in a crisis and um, you know, I don't think it's uh, fair to try and minimise the challenge that we are facing or to... Um, to, to, to suggest that it's easy to fix. Um, the reality is, is that this is a really complex challenge. She also got a bit flustered when one of the MPs asked what safe and legal routes are available for refugees. Well, we have um, uh, an asylum system and people can put in applications oh. for asylum. How would I do that? Well, you can, um, uh, you can, you can do it uh, through the safe and legal routes that we, we have. We, we have offered 390,000 places uh, to people seeking safety from various countries around the world. I'm not Syrian, um, I'm not uh, Afghan, I'm not uh, Ukrainian. What schemes open to me? Well, if you are able to get to the UK, you are able to put in an application for asylum. But I would only enter the UK illegally then, wouldn't I? 
Well, that, that would, if you put in your application for asylum uh, upon arrival, that would uh, be the, the process that you enter. How could I arrive in the UK if I didn't have permission to get onto an aircraft legally to arrive in the UK? Uh, let me just invite other colleagues if there's anything they want to add. I mean, you, you, you could engage with UNHCR. I mean, depending on which country you're from, you could engage with UNHCR, and that would be a way of, of, uh, of, um, of, uh, of getting um, leave to enter the UK in order to put in an asylum claim. But I accept that there are some countries where that would not be possible. I think the point is that there's a shortage of safe and legal routes other than for specific groups of people that we have generally offered safe haven um, to. Meanwhile, there are still concerns about asylum seekers that were being held at the processing centre in Thanet. At one stage, 4,000 people were at the facility in Manston, despite it being designed for just 1,600. Trisha Austin is a local Green councillor. I'm pleased that there aren't people there suffering the conditions that they were suffering during the, the most uh, busy period. Uh, but obviously, one has to be concerned about where people have gone, what's happened to them, what stage their processing is at. There's also been a death there and um, examples of disease and so on. So obviously, we're concerned about the health of people there as well and to make sure that nobody is uh, uh, is suffering as a result of their um, period at the camp. There have been reports that um, the, the government have, have actually moved these um, asylum seekers to kind of hotels and other accommodation. Um, so do you think that this is a positive thing? I mean, they were living in quite shocking conditions at Manston. I think being, being in better conditions has obviously got to be a good thing. The difficulty is we as a council have had no information about this. We didn't know the camp was being cleared. We had no negotiation at all with the government. And the same is true of other councils. So people are being dare I say, dumped in a variety of hotels and other accommodation across the country with no negotiation at all with local organisations. The, the Home Office is setting up large contracts with providers that simply buy up accommodation. And that then has a knock-on effect on other people who, who need housing. So the government really does need to be talking to local authorities before it goes ahead and does things like this. Is this something you've been raising um, to your council leader and to your fellow councillors? Certainly, and it's something the council leader I know has been really concerned about um, because one of the uh, uh, places that was chosen for accommodation here was somewhere that we had hoped to be using perhaps to convert into accommodation for our own homeless people or people on the housing list. So there's a there's a tension there. It's not that we don't want to be welcoming. Ramsgate is one of the places where the Dunkirk little ships went from. We, we have a, a long and proud history of welcoming people uh, into this country and into this area. And we've, uh, for example, we run a, a support group for Ukrainian refugees. There's a lot of Ukrainian people in the town and they've been made extremely welcome. But on the other hand, we do have to look at what the issues are here. And the government has handled this appallingly badly. My understanding is that they were offered by the French government a processing centre on the other side of the channel and they've repeatedly turned it down. And as a result, we've got desperate people risking their lives and the lives of their children in tiny boats in the busiest shipping lanes in the world. It's just ridiculous. So how do you think this could have been dealt with differently? Um, kind of the, How can we support asylum seekers um, in a more effective way in your eyes? Oh, where can we start? I think we need proper processing at the other side of the channel in this case, but also we need to be working with other countries. Um, I'm afraid Brexit hasn't helped in this regard because we've done this thing about 
we've got our sovereignty we don't need to talk to anybody else and actually it's been extremely unhelpful it many of our own students for example have lost opportunities to go and study abroad as a result of the loss of freedom of movement so it's had a really bad effect across the board so from the point of view of asylum seekers we need to be able to process their their claims quickly much much more quickly than we are doing but also we need to be giving them permission to work as soon as we know that they're here and they've got some kind of a valid claim that's worth uh, uh, pursuing then we need to allow them to work we've got the ridiculous situation at the moment where we're incarcerating people in one place at the same time as saying we haven't got enough jobs in another place we haven't haven't got the, the workers to do the jobs that we need it's re a really backwards situation and the government really needs to have sat down and thought it out it seems to be a a series of knee-jerk responses rather than a proper strategy. Elsewhere, Charity says more work needs to be done in Kent around getting people to talk about racism. It's after police revealed there had been 16 reported cases of racial abuse of football matches in the county since 2017. Four of those led to charges. Show racism the red card is calling on local authorities to work with them to help tackle the issue. Emergency services in Kent are urging us not to call 999 needlessly or inappropriately after putting up with more than 6,000 abandoned or hoax calls last month. CCAM, the ambulance service that covers counties including ours, and Kent Fire Rescue say it wastes valuable time and resources. A Kent MP has called for Just Stop Oil to be classified as a criminal organisation. Darford's Gareth Johnson spoken out in the Commons after two men climbed the Darford crossing last month as part of a climate protest, closing it for more than 36 hours. They then attacked artworks, the M25 and anything else to cause misery and mayhem. These people are not protesters, they are criminals. Will the Prime Minister, therefore, consider making Just Stop Oil a prescribed organisation so that they can be treated as the criminal organisation they actually are? The Prime Minister says the police had the government's support in minimising disruption and tackling illegal activity. It's emerged bosses in Medway had to fork out £435,000 to clear rubble that was illegally dumped next to a main road. The council had to remove nearly 1,400 tonnes of commercial waste, equivalent to the weight of seven blue whales, off the A289 Hasted Road near Wainscott. It took an external contractor with specialist equipment 10 days to dispose of it. An Ashford cyclist says she's lucky she wasn't injured by an open manhole that was covered with an upside-down shopping trolley. Jackie Dodson almost went down it while travelling into work in the dark earlier this week. The manhole cover in an alleyway at the bottom of Osborne Road in Willsborough near the railway bridge has now been replaced. Now the winter season is officially underway for the people who make sure our roads are clear of frost and snow over the next few months. The Kensal Line podcast has been told how almost 120 gritters are on standby along with more than 63,000 tonnes of salt. National Highways bosses will also be monitoring over 50 weather stations. Matt Salt is from the organisation, which has four depots covering the county. He's been chatting with Nicola. We're planning for severe weather throughout the whole year. It's not just the winter or the summer, it's 12 months for us. So we're dealing with heavy rain, um, fog, wind, snow and obviously extreme heat. So yes, we did see a bit of that uh, in the summer, but obviously now we're, we're focused um, really on the cold, on the cold stuff, the snow. We've got... Um, obviously, we've been prepping all year. We've got the new new Gritter fleet across the southeast. We've got over 60,000 tonnes of salt, um, 400 trained drivers ready and waiting for when the forecast does turn cold 
to obviously be, be able to react as quickly as possible to make sure our network remains safe for our customers. Tell us about this new fleet of gritters then. Yeah, so we've got a new new uh, gritter fleet as of uh, 2021. So this will be their first uh, winter be used in earnest. They are, they're able to, they've got bigger capacity so we can um, put more salt on the road. They can travel faster so we're not um, inconveniencing the, the travelling public as much. And also they're more visible. So we put big... Um, big red and white and orange stripes on the, on the back so you, you clearly see them so and people won't know the gritters are coming um, and they're easier for our drivers to, to use so on the whole it's a great improvement and investment for us as a business and as you mentioned there an awful lot of salt in storage around the uh, around the county and around the southeast um for kent can you tell us a bit more about the the logistics like where those gritters will be going out from in kent we've got four main depots i'm currently sat in one down at stamford uh, near folkestone we've got one up at farthing corner at the top of kent and one in the middle at cold harbour and one just to not quite in Kent, but in, in Sussex near Weatherhill. So we've got good coverage across the whole of our roads, the motorways and trunk roads, the A roads across the county, um, all of which have got salt barns, um, which store um, up to 5,000 tonnes of salt each. Um, plus each of those um, depots has got a fleet of gritters with dedicated drivers there. Plus we also have um, um, eight reserve gritters across the county just in case of any issues with those fleets. So we, we've definitely got enough salt, definitely got enough gritters and we've got enough trained drivers to deliver the service, uh, which runs right through now to the end of April. I was interested to see that you're monitoring like 50 weather stations. I mean, it's an awful lot of, um, it's never guesswork, is it? It's got to be quite scientific as to when you send the fleet out. What sort of temperatures do we need to get to for you guys to say, actually, we need to head out and treat the roads? Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, sure, right. We've got um, uh, a team of winter verifiers who are checking the forecasts twice a day. That's provided by um, the Met Office to us. We're reviewing that. Obviously, also factoring that we're on a coastal location, so moisture in the air might be higher around Kent. So we really, you know, we're not just taking the raw data. We're putting local knowledge to that as well. And we've got some more vulnerable locations, particularly the hills and the, the wider countryside. So we're looking at those. So, yes, we're looking at temperatures less than um, one and a half degrees. Anything below that, that is when we really start to gear up to go out. Um, and also the moisture in the air. So we, we can, we, we might not need to go out if it's if it's a really dry um, cold, but if obviously if there's moisture, then we'll go out. So yeah, about that, that the number is about 1.5 degrees, anything around there or lower, that's when we'll be gearing up and we've got people on standby 24 hours a day, ready to um, load the gritters and off they go on there. All the runs are two hours, which we can comfortably do in, the, in that time and distance to really hit our network well. Kent Castle features in a new Netflix series about Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn, which is out today. His second wife grew up at Hever near Edenbridge. The three-part docudrama tells a story of how they ended up together. And this really must mean it's nearly Christmas. The Coca-Cola truck is going to Blue Water on Friday. They're supporting charity Fair Share to try and ease food poverty this festive season. Kent Online Sports. Football and Gillingham have been unable to climb out of the League 2 relegation zone after last night's match. The game at Crawley Town finished in a goalless draw. It follows a disappointing defeat to Newport Town on Saturday, which left boss Neil Harris frustrated. He's still not happy with the result as the Jills have now gone eight league games without a win. Our sports reporter Luke Cordell spoke to him after the match. The reaction tonight was um, so much better. You know, we competed every ball, played on the front foot, uh, we pressed when we could. Um, ultimately, should have won the game. Again, so I'm here again. So I'm pleased with the response from Saturday. I'm pleased with the players played on the front foot. I would say we played more Gillingham-like at times today, um, but we should have won the game. And so again, I'm disappointed we've not won the game because the chances we created 
we've missed absolute sitters. Absolute sitters. I'm just sitting there to the boys. I said, look, I'm, I'm not condemning you. It's the hardest thing in the football matches to score a goal um, and get a decent referee at times. But we should have won that game today. And at some stage, the players have to take ownership of sticking that ball in the net. We've controlled the game, we've dominated the game pretty much. Um, even without the ball, we were comfortable in shape. Um, and then we, we had all the best chances. And, and yeah, it, it was a strong performance. I won't put it down as a really good performance, it was a really strong performance by us. Um, and it's more what, what I expect. Um, and sooner or later, someone has to drop for us. Has to drop for us. Uh, Stonewall penalty in front of, front of our fans uh, on Will Wright, ref doesn't give it. Um, and we've missed some, some sitters of me. Quite a bit of debate about holding on in the box and dragging people down of late in the World Cup. I mean, that was a penalty, wasn't it? Yeah. Like, I'm going to go see the referee now, and I'm not, not going to go rant and rave at him because this doesn't achieve anything, but it's a penalty. Will gets the wrong side of their player, and he gets spun round and pulled to the floor. So if everyone's a penalty at the World Cup, after Harry Maguire's, obviously, which yeah, we know was yeah. a penalty, but they've obviously had a ticking off for not giving it, that has to be a penalty. But how can a thousand people see it? You see it. Their bench laugh about it. And then the people who didn't see it was the officials. So, again, it's just... I very rarely bemoan officials. All I'd say, again, it's just a little something that just hasn't got no way, is it? We're travelling to Dagenham and Redbridge this weekend for the second round of the FA Cup. To cricket now, and Kent Zankrawley is heading to Australia to make his T20 Big Bash League debut. 24-year-old has been called up as an international replacement player for the Hobart Hurricanes. His Kent teammate Sam Billings is part of the Brisbane Heat squad. And gymnast Georgia May Fenton is going to be a special guest at this year's Medway Sports Awards. The Commonwealth star won gold at this year's games in Birmingham and silver at the recent World Championships in Liverpool. Prizes will be handed out to clubs, coaches and individuals from the towns next month. Well, that's all from us for today. Thanks ever so much for listening. Don't forget you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and TikTok. You can also sign up to The Briefing to get a daily update of the top stories each morning. Just head to kentonline.co.uk. News you can trust. This is the Kent Online Podcast. This podcast is sponsored by the FG Barnes Group with showrooms in Canterbury and Maidstone, offering a range of new and approved used cars, including MG, Seat and Vauxhall.